Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into, Je into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for um, giving us the breath to worship your name this morning. Lord, through song um, and the words we just sung, Father, I pray that those words um, would reign true in our hearts, or that they wouldn't be just words on a screen or words that even come out of our mouths, Lord, but that they would be um, truth that we would proclaim every day. Father, I pray um, for this time in your word um, that we would see it as worship as well. Mm. Lord, that you would speak um, through your words um, and use Kevin um, to help shed light on them. Father, I pray that we would be um, open uh, to hear from you that you would just continue to, to shape us and mold us more and more into your likeness. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Thank you guys for being here this morning. If you got a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn it over to Romans chapter 6. Um, that's where we're going to, uh, we're going to be spending most of our time here this morning. We'll probably hop around one time uh, during the during, uh, during our time in the Word, but go ahead and, and, and move on over to Romans chapter 6. We'll have the, the words up on the screen for you as well, but I always find for me personally, it's nice to have it right there in front of me. Um, and so uh, last week we finished up uh, chapter 5, and uh, we saw that really kind of what, what Paul was trying to say to us is that Jesus is the better Adam, and, um, and, and by that we mean Adam from the Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3 account. And so for some of you guys, you might be like, what the heck are you talking about? And what we were trying to, to kind of unpack, because what Paul was doing was sharing something with us pretty theologically deep and pretty doctrinally rich, and that was this, that that Adam was meant to be the federal representative of the entire human race um, when he was created. And we see that in, in Genesis chapter 2 when, when God tells Adam, right, to, to go into the garden. He gives him dominion and authority over all things in the garden. He tells him that, that he will be blessed if he manages to, to fulfill his God-designed role as a man. And really the only kind of charge that he has to follow is to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and by, by Adam kind of fulfilling this, this mandate to him, this cultural mandate for him as a, as a human man created in the image and likeness of God, that 
through him, you know, the entire human race would experience blessing and know God and be able to experience him fully. And that, and that was the way it was designed and supposed to be. But as we saw and we know, if you're familiar with the Genesis account at all, Genesis chapter 3, Adam rebels against God, eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and therefore sin enters the world. And so the, the point that that Paul is making at the end of Romans chapter 5 is that Adam as our federal representative sinned and therefore because he sinned death entered the world and because Adam sinned all men sinned what Paul was saying is that all of us are guilty of sin because of Adam's sin and we and you know we we work through the implications of that I, I remember you know you know what's the great thing about me being up here and you all being out there is I can see your faces when I say something and when I said, hey, we're all guilty as sinners because of Adam's sin, the look on your all's faces was kind of like, I don't like that. I don't like what Kevin's saying right now. But biblically, this is what Paul was teaching us, is that Adam is our federal representative, and because he sinned, we are all in him and guilty of sin. Now, the, what we kind of tried to get across last week is that two things are true. One, federal representation is good, and we actually do believe in it. We have lawyers. You elect federal uh, representatives in Congress and the Senate. That there are, there are things that we do, right, that, that affirm federal representation as being okay in our lives. But then when it comes to Adam, we're like, well, I don't really like that Adam sinned and therefore is guilty and is sins to death. I don't like having him as my federal representative. But the reality is, and this was our second point, is that you and I would have done no different than Adam. That the reality for you and I is that because we are, you know, tied to him genetically, generationally, because he's the first man, right, that we are therefore underneath the same curse as him and we would have done the same exact thing. So God therefore says, okay, Adam is the federal representative of the human race, and the entire human race is guilty of sin. But here's the good news, that God in his mercy, right, sent Jesus to be the better Adam. To be the federal representative that would both fulfill the law of God, but also suffer the penalty of our sin and credit to us his righteousness. And so instead of Adam of our, or ourselves trying to defend ourselves before the Father for our sin, we have Jesus interceding on our behalf saying, I gave my life for Kevin. I gave my life for whoever you are this morning out in the audience that God sent his son to give his life for you and to be your representative. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and your sin. He doesn't see you and your rebellion. He sees Jesus' sinless perfection and obedience, and you are hidden in him. So God sees Christ in you, not your sin. And that is what Paul is trying to get across. He's saying, look, right, there is great hope for us. Because of justification, because of what Christ has done, because we are in him, we are hidden in God. And therefore, we know who we are. We have an identity adopted as sons and daughters of the creator. Where there was once rebellion and enmity and nothing but God's wrath pointed against us, Jesus has saved us and made a way. He's the better Adam. Now, Romans 5 finished this way. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. 
Look at what Paul says. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That there, there's this great hope for all of us in Christ. And that the law reveals our sin to us and shows us how broken we are. But when the law does that and we see our sinfulness fully, the grace of God abounds even more, magnifying how great Jesus is. That the greater realization you come to of your own sinfulness, the better Jesus is to you. And that because of this, right, we're able to worship him. Now, last week, as we were working through that text, I know that there could be a lot of questions, right? I talked last week, I said, you know, this is probably the most theologically dense and concise passage in all of Romans, and it's a lot to process through. And so there was questions about original sin, right? We said last week that what Paul is saying is that all of us are born sinners. And I shared with you from Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, that David says that in, in sin his mother conceived him, that from the womb he was sinful. Meaning that you and I, you know, as much as we might love babies and how cute they are, they're born little heathen sinners, right? Like little William is sitting right back there next to Caitlin, right? He, he's, he is a little sinner, right? It'll just become manifest when he gets bigger and we see that sin on full display like in my own children and myself. And that, that God is saying that all of us are born, right, sinners and how that works. But then, right, we talked about federal headship, right, and how it's better that, that that Adam is not our federal representative anymore, but that Christ is, and that it's fair and true that he's done this. But there was one question that popped up last week that we did not answer, and that was this. If the law causes sin to increase, as Paul, as Paul says in verse 20 of chapter 5, if the law causes sin to, to increase so that grace can also abound all the more, then a major kind of question arises— and Paul anticipates this question, right? Think through this. If sinning and being aware of that sin causes grace to abound, and I know that from justification I don't contribute anything to my salvation, it's completely the work of Jesus Christ that saves me, if that's the case, shouldn't we just sin constantly so that we can experience more of God's grace? I mean, think about that for a second. If, if the law reveals our sinfulness and where sinfulness increases, grace abounds all the more. Basically what Paul's saying is like, you can't do anything to undo the grace of God to you in Christ. Then shouldn't we just sin? Shouldn't we live however we want, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? That, that old slogan. Shouldn't we just do that and view Jesus as being this great, you know, get out of hell free card? Shouldn't we just live and do whatever we want? Whether God has commanded that we do it or not, we live the way we want to live. Because if we sin all the more, right, we'll experience more of God's grace. But isn't that, isn't that what it seems that Paul might be saying there in chapter 5? Maybe asked another way, why be good at all? Right, does Paul's theology, actually what he's teaching here, encourage us to sin? Encourage us to rebel against God's commandments. Does the gospel, right, the truth of what Christ has done, does the gospel affect the way we live our lives here and now? Now, you guys probably know that, you know, like, the, with, the, with my tone and the way I'm presenting this, that I, I view that as a silly question. That, that, on, 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 that, that is a ridiculous thing to bring up. Like, hey, I can just live however I want and do whatever I want. 
But here's the reality, right? It may seem silly to ask a question like that, but here's the reality. This is an actual issue within the church right now. And really, in reality, has been for the last 2,000 years. This idea, well, wait a minute. If Jesus died for my sin, I can live and do whatever I want and then just say, Jesus, I'm sorry and I'm forgiven. Right? Isn't that how it works, right? The, the common terminology for it today is called free grace. But the theology of some churches will teach you that grace is free and God demands nothing of you and you live your life however you want because Jesus is the free ticket to heaven. Otherwise, you run your own life and you do what you want, really. And, and what, what they're saying is, is that Jesus is my Savior, but he's not my Lord. Very, very popular theology today where we teach on the love and mercy and grace of forgiveness of God, but we don't teach the lordship of God. But is that what Paul is teaching here? Right, look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Because Paul sees this objection coming. Right? He sees this question coming, and look at what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? He asks the question himself, rhetorically. Are we just supposed to sin and do whatever we want, keep living however we want, so that, so that grace may abound? And look at what he says. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That term, by no means, is the strongest idiom in the Greek language for refusing to accept a statement's uh, veracity or truth. That Paul is outraged that this question would even be brought up. He thinks it's absurd that someone could have read his letter up until this point and then come to this conclusion that Paul is encouraging people to sin and rebel against God. He's outraged by that. I, I love what Tim Keller says in reference to this, this question. He says, the people that say things like this don't understand the gospel. People that, that say you can live however you want, it doesn't matter because Jesus died for your sins, don't understand the fundamental truths about what Christ has done and what that means by implication for you and I. They get the idea that we've been justified and forgiven. They don't understand. They, they get this. They know what we've been saved from. They don't know what we've been saved to. They know that we've been saved from our sin and from the wrath of God, but we, they don't know that we've been saved to holiness so that we might worship and glorify God in our obedience. They completely miss that. And so Paul's going to, he's going to prove it. He says, no, emphatically, no. This is not the way we're that you should respond to this message of justification that I've just shared over the course of the last five chapters. Now, how is he going to prove that? He's going to do it by, by, by saying this. Union with Christ denies the possibility of pursuing sin habitually as an issue. Let me repeat that. Union with Christ denies the possibility of habitual sin being an issue for the long term for you. Now, back in chapter, back in chapter 5 when I preached on verses 1 through 11... Right? I shared with you guys about what union with Christ was. Okay, let me, let me share this kind of definition with you again from Cameron Cole. He says, in simple terms, union with Christ captures the mysterious reality that Christ dwells in the heart of believers, and believers simultaneously dwell within the heart of Christ. Therefore, they are one. 
meaning that, that there is something supernatural happening in the life of a believer where God dwells within you and you dwell within him. That's how strong the relationship is. And so, you know, you might be sitting there again, where, where are you getting with this? What does union with Christ have to do with anything? Look at the language that Paul uses in verses 2 through 4 to show how our union with Christ, right, frees us from this notion of thinking that sinning licentiously is a, is a good idea. Right, look at verse 2. He says, by no means, and then look at what he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so he says there, right in verse 2, we've died to sin. Now pay attention to what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See the union terms he's talking there, the, the, the way we relate with Jesus, that we've been baptized into Christ, and therefore because we've been baptized into Jesus, we've been baptized into his death. Then look at verse 4. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's saying, in, in this union with Christ, it's as if you and I were buried with him in his death, in his crucifixion, and then raised to new life in his resurrection. That this is a theological and practical truth about who you are if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is true of you. That your union with Jesus right, makes a desire to sin all the more so that grace abounds impossible. Because when Christ died, he died to pay the penalty of sin, and you died with him. You are dead to sin. And you've been baptized in him and raised to new life. I love what Colossians 1.13 says. Look at what Paul says. And I'm going I'm to read a couple verses ahead of it, starting in verse 11. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. And then look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Meaning that, that God in, in our union with him has done this exchange where we were, we were moved from death to life. Where we are moved from our, our, our slavery to sin to the kingdom of God. That there's been this exchange that has occurred and in being in union with him, we are freed and delivered. Now how does this work? Right, because I'm throwing a out a lot of theology right now and I'm, I'm saying things that are theologically true. But how can I be freed from sin? Because this is what the question is going to be. How can I be freed from sin intellectually and theologically, as Paul's saying here, and yet still clearly see the effects of sin on my life. Right, because the reality is, Paul is not saying that you and I are going to be sinless from here on out. That is not what he's saying. That is something known as sinless perfection, and it's actually heresy. Right, Paul's not saying, hey, you're not going to sin anymore. He's also not saying, hey, that we should let sin abound. He's saying neither one of those things. Right, he, let me give you an example of how this might work. Right, how many of you guys have ever seen a military or war movie? Okay. 
You ever notice, like, one of my, one of my favorite, um, you know, TV shows in the last probably decade is, is the show Band of Brothers. And I, let's see, I heard a wo- couple whoop whoops. Yeah, there we go. Okay. One of the things that's interesting later on in the movie, when you see the, the, the airborne kind of parachuting in and they liberate a town, what happens to the town when they come out? Right? They celebrate. They're excited. They're liberated. They're no, under, they're no longer under German occupation any longer. And yet, when you liberate a town, where does the opposing military go? You know, just typically not far outside the town. And they continue to kind of loft uh, maybe mortars into the town. They continue to kind of harass and try to pick people off. And maybe even with an opportunity, try to retake the town. And even if the town has been liberated and they hold the defense, that does not mean that the opposing military cannot in some way continue to kind of bother and do things to you. Right? This is kind of what Paul is saying the way that sin works. Right, that you and I were in slavery to our sin. We were occupied by it. Right, the way that a, an opposing military might occupy a city. And that when Christ died for us, and we, by repentance and faith, accepted the free gift of God and Christ to us, we were liberated. We were, we were dead to sin and made, made alive in Christ. And yet because of our flesh, because of our bodies... Right? We still sin. We continue to kind of be hammered, right, by the opposition. And that sin may at times still affect us, but it no longer controls us. We are no longer underneath its authority and the power that it has over to us. That any time, right, that we might give in to sin, we are submitting to an authority that has no authority over us any longer. Right, my pastor used to use this illustration. He said, the Bible uses language saying that you and I are dead. It's as if you and I were in our graves and Jesus opened up the grave and called us out. And yet sometimes we choose to walk back into the graveyard anyway. And in that illustration, it's like, that's really weird. Yes, that's how sin feels to a believer. Repulsive, like wanting to walk back into a casket. So how, so, so I'm free. I'm free then. That's, that's what Paul's saying. I'm free. I don't have to sin anymore. What, what you're saying is, Paul, is there was a time in my life before Christ that I was enslaved to my sin and dead inside and that I couldn't choose to do anything other than sin and now you're saying I'm free. How, how has this happened? Well, it's all the language that he used there, the, the union with Christ, right? We've been baptized into Jesus, right? That word baptized is the Greek word baptizo, and it means literally to sink a ship or to completely submerge. Now, Paul is not talking about water baptism here. This, this, this becomes the problem for us as we're reading Scripture, right? Over the last couple hundred years, right, we know that baptism is that thing that people do either when they're babies and someone takes them up and, you know, the, the, the priest or the pastor sp- sprinkles a little bit of water on their head. Or later on, right, you make a profession of faith and then you go down in the water and you get completely dunked in a tank or you go into the river and you get baptized in the river. Or here, we have this really heavy-duty, beautiful horse trough that we baptize people in. And, and so we, we see that word baptism, and we don't use that word any other time in our everyday vernacular. It's only a church word. And so we see that, and we immediately connect it to the act of water baptism that's exercised in the church. But this is not what Paul is talking about here. Right? If we follow, right, the definition of the word baptizo to its logical conclusion, what Paul is saying is here, you have been completely submerged into Christ. That your life is hidden with him, that you are completely in him, 
if you are a follower of Jesus, that our union with Christ means that we have in many ways fully paid the penalty for our sin once and for all and that we are relating to Christ in that way, that we are in him in his death and we are in him in his resurrection. We have the same legal status as Jesus, which is dead to sin but alive to God. And we know that to be true because it says right there in Romans 6 that the Father raised him from the dead. Now, if we look at Romans 6 verse 5, look at what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in resurrection. Meaning that the hope that we have is that we're both dead to our sin, but we're also alive to God for the first time. Meaning that you and I were once enslaved to our sin, unable to please God, but now for the first time, we are actually able to love God fully and serve him. That we're actually able to glorify him and worship him fully. That union with Jesus, justification, positionally makes us dead to sin and alive to God. And we can't escape this because it's a foundational truth of what happens to a believer. Now, what will we experience though? Right? Because this is at this point we're still talking on an intellectual level what is true. Right? You are dead to sin. You are alive to God. That is the theological truth that we're seeing here. But what will we experience? Well, let's look at, let's look at verses 6 through 10. Right? Look at what he says in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now that word old self there, right? Many of us, we read that and we're going to think, oh, like an, like an old man or who I used to be or whatever else. The word there literally means worn out or useless. So who you were before Christ is described as worn out and useless, and we see that it was crucified or killed so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I'll explain that more in just a second, but look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. For one, has died, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So we're set free from sin, and we live with Jesus. Let me try to unpack all this. If the old self is dead, here's what this means. The way you look at the world and you understand it is different now. Right here, here is what is, 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 is true of you if you are not a follower of Jesus here this morning, whether you want to admit it or know it at all or not. The Bible teaches that because of sin and original sin you, and you being born in it, you are unable able to please God. You are unable to save yourself, right? A frequent example I give, all right, for those of you guys that have e either have a job in here or in, or in college, how many of you guys volu did volunteer work for uh, uh, some sort of organization sometime in the last probably five to ten years? Probably you know, most of the people in the room. Okay, now of you guys that raised your hand, how many of you guys did that because you truly wanted to serve the people that you were helping in that organization? Any hands? Just a few. How many of you did it because you wanted a resume that looked better and announced you as, as being this person who serves and does things and you wanted to get into your university or get a job? Okay, the rest of you. 
Now, let me ask a third question, because some of you guys are like, wait a minute, I like serving people. How many of you guys served those people because you truly wanted to serve them or because it made you feel better about yourself? If it made you feel better about yourself serving, raise your hand. Therein lies the crux of the issue. Right, therein lies the depth of our sinfulness, guys. That even in an act of service to others, it's usually selfishly motivated in a way that you don't even realize. Most of you guys, I would, I'd be willing to bet, if serving somebody didn't feel good or make you feel better or you didn't get the joy from seeing right, them respond in some way, would not do it on a consistent basis. If serving was miserable without any tangible emotional response or connection to the people that you're serving, I can almost guarantee that you wouldn't continue to serve them. And you want to know how I know this to be true? My wife and I raised financial support when we first came down here to help plant this church. And if we weren't able to give somebody like tangible results of things that were going on so they felt like they were a part of it, they didn't want to be a part of what was going on here anymore. Right? They weren't serving us for the sake of serving the kingdom of God. They wanted that feeling of knowing exactly what their money was going to do. And I'm not saying necessarily that that's always terrible or wrong. I'm saying that's the reality of the human heart. That your own wickedness and selfishness deceives you even when you're serving other people. That you don't realize the depth of your own sinfulness. And what Paul is saying here is that the way you looked at the world before you were baptized into Christ as a follower of him was completely marred and tainted by this selfishness, by this sinfulness. That oftentimes even your own sin, you wouldn't even admit that it was sin. Or you would try to manage it in some way. It's not that big of a deal. It's not a problem. I don't think God really thinks that that's wrong. That you would try to excuse it and find a way out of it. Why? Because you're dead to the things of God. Now, not only that, but when you come to Christ and you've put off the old self and crucified it in him, your body of sin, your flesh, you're, you're still going to sin at times, but it doesn't have the same authority and power and control over you that it used to. You have freedom for the first time in your life in a way that you haven't known or experienced. And this is why when you talk to somebody who really knows Jesus and they talk about what they've experienced in their testimony, there is something that happened to them that frequently they're unable to describe, but they just know it happened. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, God got a hold of my life and just something, something changed in me. I, I don't know how to describe it. Just, so, like, it, it was like something overnight changed. Right, if you look at verses 9 and 10, he explains how that happens. Right? He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What he's saying is, hey, when, when, when we died to our sin and, 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 and died with Christ, that sin no longer had dominion over us. It no longer had that intellectual, powerful control over us that it used to have. And it leads to a few things. It leads to real life change. And it means, and this is, this, is, this is key, guys, I want you to hear this, that if you are really in Christ, you can live a life of consistent holiness. Like it's a real, that's a real thing. It's a real promise of God. 
right, where, where the Pharisees wanted to live a life of consistent holiness and Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, those that are in Christ actually can work towards living a life of consistent holiness and obedience to God. That's the promise of Scripture here. Now, practically, this plays out a few ways, but here's how it played out for me. When, when I came to Christ, what happened is, is sinful patterns and behaviors that I used to be a part of started going against my deepest desires and the identity of who I was. A, a prime example of this is, is, you know, I grew up in the church, but I didn't really know anything about God. And I was heavily involved in the party scene at the university I was at. I was sleeping around quite a bit. Uh, I had some drug abuse issues, and I definitely had some alcohol abuse issues. A pretty self-destructive lifestyle. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is I look back on my testimony— and what God did in my life is somewhere in between my sophomore and junior years, Jesus just, he, he, he rescued me. He saved me. He saved me from myself. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I, I, you know, I don't know much about Jesus, but like, this sounds amazing. I want that. And, and yet as I kind of continued in the same patterns of my life, right, I was still sleeping with my girlfriend at the time. I was still going out partying and, and, and you know, cr creating this kind of self-destructive wake in my path with my, my friends and my family and my relationships. And I remember toward, you know, like probably about a, a month after coming into the Lord, I wasn't in a Bible study, guys. I was maybe going to church once or twice a month on my own. Um, I didn't really have any friends that were Christians that were teaching me to read the Bible. I was kind of reading the Bible every once in a while on my, loan, uh, on my own. But, it, you know, it, it it's not like I was sitting down reading through systematic theology and talking, you know, over a cigar and a beer about Charles Spurgeon and all of his different theology with people. Like, I couldn't have even told you, like, wh like what the order the Gospels were in in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, by the way, if you're, if you're interested. I do know it now. And so anyway, I, I, I end up going through this really just bizarre uh, breakup with the girl that I was dating, who, by the way, was a Christian and never should have been dating me in the first place. And girls, I, I didn't plan to talk about this, but if you're dating a guy who's not a Christian, break up with him, please. Just, he can't, he can't be what you want, okay? Most of the time, men, I'm sorry dudes, I'm going to call you out. Most of the time, like most of us, right, when we're in our late teens and early 20s, we're like barely figuring out how to shave and put our pants on in the morning, right? If they don't love Jesus, right, they can't be what you want, Okay? Yeah, if they can't take care of themselves, get to class, get a job, etc., how are they going to, you know, be with you, take care of you, and, and, and encourage you to be all that God created you to be and help you raise kids? Right? When they're still a kid themselves. And I can tell you right now that one of the only ways that that really works and happens is the work of God in your life. Because I, I was a boy, right, who was legally an adult. I would say that I was a boy that could shave, but I don't really grow facial hair, so I don't need to shave. Right, what's, what's the other term? Peter Pan, right? One of the lost boys. They never want to grow up. I was a Peter Pan. Right? That, that's what you're dealing with. And so here's what happened, though. That was my life. I was, all, I was solely interested in my own desires and what I wanted out of life. And then God comes in and moves in and does a work in my heart. Right? And me and this girl break up. And I remember going out with my friends that night. And this is when it first started hitting me that something was different. Right? My friends were like, let's, let's drink. Let's do whatever. You know, let's, let's you, know, you know, you can sleep with whoever you want to. Now you can do whatever you want. And you're like, you know what? I, I really, like, that doesn't appeal to me at all. And looking back on it, guys, that would have been the time I would have most ch desired and chosen to live the lifestyle that I had been previously living. I was upset, things weren't going the way that I wanted them to go, and I was miserable. 
And when my life was miserable, I medicated with drugs and alcohol and sex. Right? It was, it was my coping mechanism. And so in that moment, I'm going through some turmoil. I also have no idea what I want to do with my life, and yet I'm in college, and I'm supposed to have it all figured out. That would have been the time that I most would have desired to do that. And you know what I said there? I was like, guys, I, 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 you know, I don't think I am. I'll go, I'll go out with you guys, but I'm not interested. I'll, I'll drive for you guys. Previously, selfish motivation in my life controlled me. Life was all about me, and I was never wrong. Everything was centered around my universe, and if you were my friend, it was because I had found a way to get you to serve me in my glory in some way, shape, or form. And since God has rescued me, I, when I even talk about that, I hate that I was that way. I hate the thought that I would act that way. When I sin against people now, right, when, when, when I used to sin and flex my pride with people before, and they would push back against me, I would go into courtroom mode explaining to them why they were wrong and why I was right. Now when that happens, I'm convicted. And I hate it in myself. It plays out the most in my kids. Right? When I sin against my kids and I have to go sit down before them and apologize to them because, hey, Dad sinned against you. And I can tell you right now, pre-union with Christ, that would never have been a reality. I would have never apologized to my kids. My dad never apologized to me, and I'm the adult. Why would I apologize to you? I'm the adult. I'm always right. Union with Christ is not just something that is doctrinally true, that you've been baptized with him, therefore you're saved, but it also has direct implications for you now. And what I'm saying to you as I'm explaining something theological, but that happens internally and is experiential for each and every person. If someone is really in Christ, they experience this. They experience a change of desires. That's why Paul's question that he asks, you know, that rhetorical question of shouldn't we sin more? He's, he's flabbergasted by why anyone would ever ask that question. He's like, if you are really in Christ, you would never ask that question. Because if you are really in Christ, your deepest desire is to honor your God and your heavenly Father because of what he did for you. Because you love him, because you're in him. And to sin is to, is, and to, is to sin against the one who saved you. It's to re-crucify Christ. And you love him, why would you want to re-crucify him who you love? That this question makes no sense. And so in verses 1 through 10, Paul answers that objection. He says, look, you know, no, we're not going to continue to sin. If you don't understand that, you don't understand your identity in Christ. If you are a Christian, you will experience increased holiness. Your desires are changed. God does that when he saves you. The work of the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, and you will repent if you are in him. Now, let me pause here for a second, because the things that I'm saying, right, this is why being in community is important. Because when I'm asking you this question, one of two things is happening. You're either tuning me out because you don't want to think about this, am I really in Christ or not, or you are petrified that you're not really saved. Because you look at your own sin, you're like, am I really saved right now? Do I really hate my sin? Right? And this is where you need the wisdom of other people who can see your blind spots come into your life and encourage you. 
like, you know, I, I see this. I see God at work here. I see, I see this happening. How can, how can I come alongside you and help you put this sin to death? How do you feel about that sin? Well, I hate it. Well, l- let's, let's, let's put it to death. Right, what do we need to do? Whatever it may be, I'll walk alongside you and I'll help you right, put this into death so you might experience joy and obedience to Christ and enjoy him. Right, that's the way the body of Christ is, is supposed to work. And so, so the question you might be asking is, well, how can I see more victory over my sin? How can I see the old self be put away? How can I, how can I see the new self at work? How can I see this baptism into Christ and my death and then my resurrection in him? How can I see this at play? Look at verses 11 through 14. So it starts with this. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ and God. Verse 11. That word consider means having confidence in the truth of something. Meaning, what is the truth? You are dead to sin and alive to God. Meaning you are unified with Christ in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And this is why you frequently hear us saying here at Aletheia, if you've been here any period of time, that you need to preach and rehearse the good news of the gospel to yourself daily. Right, what Paul is saying there, when he says consider, right, when he says consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, he's saying you need to know the truth about what Jesus really accomplished for you. And you need to remind yourself of it on the daily. You need to remind yourself that Jesus died so you, can, so you don't need to give in to sinful habits anymore. That he died so that you might actually live in freedom and enjoy him. That you know the truth, rehearse it, and preach it to yourself, and then live it. Right? Do you ever notice the language that God uses to describe the good news of who we are in Christ? He calls it an inheritance. How does an inheritance work? Right? If you have a family member who dies and leaves you an inheritance... What happens? That money gets deposited into your bank account. And if you are having financial problems, what's the truth about your financial problems? They're solved. Right? If you receive a large inheritance from somebody, your financial problems are solved. Unless, right, you just let the money sit there and you don't use it. Right? The inheritance doesn't do you any good if you don't tap into the reality of it. Who we are in Christ has been given to us Paul's saying, exercise it, right? Know who you are and live out the reality of the implications of that by preaching the gospel to yourself. Now the practical implications of that are listed in verses 12 through 14. Look at what he says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. It's like, look, sin has no authority over you anymore. If you feel a strong desire to sin, you need to remind yourself that you don't need to give in. It doesn't have the power that you think it does. This isn't some sort of Jedi mind trick. This is real. Which, by the way, if you've seen the new Star Wars movie, I don't know what the Force can do anymore anyway. But that in reality, right, God has freed you from your sin, right? You are no longer enslaved to it. Meaning if you have a pattern of habitual sin in some way, shape, or form, and you are in, find yourself in patterns that kind of encourage that, you have the ability to just say, you know, I'm not interested in that. That doesn't, that doesn't bring me joy, and it's, and it's disobedient to my Father and, and my God. I'm not going to walk down that way anymore. For me, 
Right, the way I told you guys that story earlier about how God started working in me and I didn't want to make that self-destructive lifestyle and continue to sleep around and, and abuse alcohol the way that I had. You know what I had to do? Right, and God gave me the, the ability to do this. Right, I stopped hanging out with the same group of friends for a little while. And that, that may be hard for some of you guys to hear. But guess what? Jesus is better than those friends I had. He is. I hate, to, I hate to break it to them, but he's better. Union with Christ is better than your friends and getting along with them and having a good time. Union with Christ is better than your boyfriend or girlfriend that you're sleeping with. Union with Christ is better than your fraternity or sorority sisters that you get drunk with and make bad decisions with. Union with Christ is better than the group of friends that you run around with doing whatever you might be doing after you get off of work on the week, weekdays, on the weekends. Right? And that in him, right, you can actually tell sin, you don't reign here anymore, I don't need to do this, I'm going to change my lifestyle. By the grace of God in me, I am going to change. Because I believe that God has already done a work in me. Then look at what he says in verse 13. He says, do not present your members to sins as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You want a practical way, right, that you can start seeing sin be put to death? Start serving God and not your own desires. It's really simple. Right? We don't need to come up with this super... Uh, complex plan of holiness or things we need to do the way that the Pharisees did. I would submit to you that you tend not to trust your, your former desires. Instead, you start trusting the word of God. As Paul says, when you're presenting, it's a decision of the will. It's your call, meaning you don't present your bodies to sin, but instead you present yourselves to God. There's an easy way to put sin to death. And it's to repent Pursue holiness and pursue God's agenda. And you pursue God's agenda by learning his word and being in community and prayer. It's really simple. The church has been doing it for the last 2,000 years. It works. Number three. What he says in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You can practically live out this truth of who you are in Christ by not letting sin reign, by serving God and not your own desires. And as he says in verse 14, you rehearse your identity to yourself over and over and over again. I'm free from sin's power. I'm free from the law. I can live because God loves me. And instead of being in fear because of punishment, because of the law, I'm going to choose obedience because of love and grace. Isn't it great that our obedience can be motivated by his love first for us instead of our fear for what he might punish us for? So this is real, guys. And here's, the, here's, here's how I kind of want to finish up our time today. If you are professing to be a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, will you take sin seriously? Because my fear is, is that as, as a whole, we tend not to. 
and I'm including myself in this, guys. I'm right there with you. As I read this passage, I'm like, Paul's talking about all this freedom, and I don't feel free most days. If we don't take sin seriously, we cheapen grace. We actually make less of Jesus, not more of him. I'm going to read to you from one of my favorite books of all time. This is going to be long, but I want you to hear all of it because I think it's super important. It, goes, it ties directly with what I'm saying. This is from um, Teacher Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I, I don't think it could be more eloquently put than the way he, he talks about true discipleship in Christ and what obedience to Christ looks like and how we can enjoy freedom in God. So listen to what he says. Instead of calling it free grace, by the way, he calls it cheap grace. But this idea of sinning, 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 sinning over again, not, not being worried about it in any way, shape, or form because Jesus is a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is what he has to say about it. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price. Grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Everybody tracking that? Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of, of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as a Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. Everybody tracking that? Just believe and you're saved. That's what he's saying there. In such a church, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. He's like, you don't really want to be delivered from sin. That's what cheap grace is all about. Cheap grace, therefore, amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. He's saying a denial of Christ. That's what he's saying. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. Well then, let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model himself on the world's standards in every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace, with, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and self sell all that he has 
It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man's his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. That line right there is powerful. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It has to be protected from the world and not be thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which he speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. On two separate occasions, Peter received the call, follow me. It was the first and last word Jesus spoke to his disciple. A whole life lies between these two calls. The first occasion was by the lake of Gennesareth where Pe when Peter left his nets and his craft and followed Jesus at his word. The second occasion is when the risen Lord finds him back again at his old trade. Once again, it is by the lake of Gennesareth and once again, the call is follow me. Between the two calls lay a whole life of discipleship in the following of Christ. Halfway between them comes Peter's confession when he acknowledged Jesus as the Christ of God. This grace was certainly not self-bestowed. It was the grace of Christ himself now prevailing upon the disciple to leave all and follow him, now working in him that confession which, it, which to the world may sound like ultimate blasphemy, now inviting Peter to the supreme fellowship of martyrdom for the Lord he had denied, and thereby forgiving him all his sins. In the life of Peter, grace and discipleship are inseparable. He had received the grace which costs Guys, by definition, in some way, shape, or form, you have been told or preached to a gospel that is free. 
And here's the beautiful thing it is. The gospel is free from you, but it cost God dearly. It costs something. Your sin, my sin, cost the Father dearly. And yet he freely chose to buy you out of death by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that invitation in the gospel that he extends to you to die to self and to live to Christ is the invitation given to every disciple of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years. But it is a costly, costly invitation. This is why James says that faith without works is dead. Because the reality of what Paul is preaching here in Romans chapter 6 is that you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ if you are really in him. And that it is costly. You have been bought by the blood of Christ. We take communion every week to celebrate that, that the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ was poured out, right? And I tell you, when you take communion, before you come up here, confess sin, and then come up here and joyfully take communion, worshiping Jesus for what he has done. Because he has pulled you out of death and into life. He has purchased you with a price. You've been bought out of slavery to sin. And you have been saved to Christ, a life that is costly, a life that cost Peter his own life on earth, a life that may very well cost you the life you have now. And yet, as I said to you earlier, the life I gave up was a life with a certain group of friends and a certain group of people, and it was costly, but it was worth it. Because Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. He's the pearl of great price. Christ is all. May we take obedience to him seriously as our call as his disciples. And may that call cause in us a sweet aroma that worships and glorifies him. I invite you during our time of communion to repent of sin, reflect on it, ask God to forgive you, and ask God to change you. Then come up here and worship God in communion for what he has done for you in Christ. Then I encourage you to get in community that's going to encourage you to experience the joy of obedience to Christ, not your own sinfulness. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word, there's great beauty in what you promise here. But I fear, Lord, that there also may be great resistance in our own hearts to want to take the implications of what your word says here to its, to its logical conclusion. 
where my fear is that we want cheap grace. We want Jesus Christ the Savior, but we, want, we don't want Jesus Christ our Lord. As a church, we want to proclaim a Christ that saves from sin, but we don't want to proclaim a Christ that tells us to pluck out our eyeball if it causes us to sin. Not realizing that by refusing to do that, we deny the very Christ we proclaim to love. Father, reveal our proclivity to cheapen the cross. Father, reveal to us the full magnitude of our sin and rebellion towards you. And then, Father, let us not forget the great love and grace you have for us in Christ. May we dwell on that the way that Paul tells us to dwell on it in verse 14. May we preach the good news to ourselves daily that I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And that he is my king ruling and reigning and that I gladly submit to his rule over my life instead of my own. Father, I pray for each and every man, woman, and child here this morning, Father, that you would save them and that they would know more fully the joy that comes from obedience to you. That there is more joy to be had by dying to sin and living to you than living to sin and wanting to see grace abound in that sin. Father, reveal this to us and help us to experience and know the power of the gospel. And may it cause in us a life of obedience. And may it cause in us a witness that the world around us cannot deny of how great our God is. Father, thank you for everyone who's here this morning. Do a work now and them that only you can do. And I ask this in Jesus' name.